You know, Tim. Yes. You and the audience should know that uh, with this show that we're about to do, you should beware. 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 Beware of the 90-year-old spoiler, because <laughs> some of these movies came out 90 years ago. So show some respect and stop watching your conjurings and your, your, <laughs> yeah. your insidious <laughs> This is Sendrum Drum Drum Drum. Stand by. I'm spooky spooks, but not really because they're so old spooks. <laughs> uh, they can still be creepy. I got a creepy vibe off of a few of them. You did? Yeah. All right. We haven't well, even got into what we're talking about. No, we haven't. What is it? It's, uh, hey, my name's Tim. That's right. I'm Derek. And this is uh, Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Ooh. Woo. What are we talking about, Derek? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about... Old, classic, universal monster movies. Mm-hmm. The ones that started it all, sort That's of. That's right. After the German horror movies started it all in the silent <laughs> era. <laughs> you know, I mean, you probably know all of these creatures that we're going to be t- discussing tonight. Yep. But maybe you don't know the, where they came from and their popular look that they have. Or you didn't watch the beloved classic movies like you should have if you're a good movie watcher person. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, Universal Monsters, right? right? There's a, a close-knit group. Who are they? They can spread out a little more than what we're doing here, but I yeah. I thought we should condense it to the main biggie. The core. Yeah. That's Dracula. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then we got uh, Frankenstein. <laughs> and then we got The Mummy. The Mummy. Step aside, Brendan Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Karloff is better than you. And then we have The Invisible Man. This was this was a, a, an, an interesting one to me. Yeah, it was. We'll get into that. Right. And then... The Wolfman. The Wolfman. Woo! Oh, 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 oh. Party down. <laughs> That's Wolfman Jack you just did. Oh, yeah. Hey! <laughs> Come on down to the radio station. It's Wolfman Jack. <laughs> and then last but not least, Creature. The Creature. From that dirty lagoon. Instead of dragging on the introduction any longer, <laughs> let's, let's dive right in. He did the monster match. The monster match. You know, we did talk about this first guy, Dracula, on another one of our episodes that was about right. cool bad guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um... 
Dracula, you know, he's got a pretty storied history. Right. Basically, the whole vampirism thing goes back millennia. Right. Right? Across many cultures, too, which is just craziness. Yeah, right. All around the world. I mean, of course... Which makes me think it's real. (laughs) Well, it has to be. (laughs) As uh, Americans, you know, we tend to be a little Eurocentric, so we kind of... The lore we're familiar with is from England, which, you know, all the stories there, but a lot of the lore comes from a lot of Europe, (laughs) Uh, you know, not just the the, the ones we know, the Walking Dead guys, right? Right. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's cross-cultural, all of those things that end up being thought of as like demons and spirits, which apparently were precursors to what we know as vampires. All of that stuff is like an amalgamation put together in, in the right recipes and out comes vampirism. Yeah. Cue the music. The coalescence of mm-hmm. the vampire and our other character, Frankenstein, comes from uh, well, Mary Shelley and her staying with Lord Byron and this big mansion and with her husband, Percy, and uh, her good friend, John William Polidari, I think. Yeah, Polidari, I believe. Yeah. They basically, on a stormy night, and the they're all writers, right? Lord Byron's a poet, and uh, right. Percy's a poet, and uh, she's uh, an aspiring author, and so is her friend John. Right, yeah. And they put themselves up to a challenge for the night to come up with scary stories, right? Right, yeah. They were basically sitting around and saying, hey, let's come up with a story that will not only entertain us through this boring night, but also two schmoes 200 years in the future on something called a podcast. Podcast will sit around and regurgitate this story. Yeah. <laughs> this would have been in the early Victorian era, by the way, early 1800s. Right, yeah. Yeah. And what came out of it was uh, Mary Shelley, of course, started the idea of Frankenstein. Right. You make man like me. Uh, her buddy John William Polidori came up with the poem The Vampire. Right. I am Dracula. I think for a long time, though, Lord Byron kind of took the credit for it, even mm. though he didn't actually write it. Right. Yeah, that's that hot and juicy 200 years plus old gossip you can get here only on transmission from the Forbidden Planet. <laughs> <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. Yeah, he, he kind of stole Polidori's thunder mm-hmm. for a long time. Right. And, yeah, that was, and it was published in 1819. That's just crazy. So, yeah. I mean, if you really put that into perspective, that Polidori is pulling from what I would imagine is the stories and lore from the time he's in and also in, uh, from all the areas that he had traveled at that time and putting all of those things that he had heard into that story, which is... The vampire poem and how it kind of, years later, it kind of inspired Bram Stoker to take the idea and create from the, all these uh, legends and lores of these vampires and applying it to uh, a, a real-life figure. Right. Vlad the Impaler or, you know, Mm -hmm. the son of Dracula who became like the, uh, I should say Dracula means son of Dracul, so. Right. He was the son of uh, some uh, Transylvanian kind of uh, warlord who got killed or whatever, and then he whooped some ass and took over the land, and he was the guy who stuck poles up people's butts and put them on display. (laughs) And they said that he would drink the blood of these victims and all that stuff, and, and that's, you know, that's probably all legend and hype, but... 
he was a real person. Right. Vlad the Impaler is Vlad Tepish. Yeah, perfect for the imagination. Mm-hmm. So he puts it all together in his own little filter and, and shoots out Bram Stoker Dracula. Right. And that's like in 1897, so... Like we talked about in our other episode, it was written in this kind of cool found footage kind of way where it's like the writings of all the characters uh, involved. Right. Uh, journaling and all that stuff and kind of yeah. put together as if... Right. He had discovered all these documents and made a book out of it. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven, save for a long white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot, without a single speck of colour about him anywhere. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture, saying in excellent English, but with a strange intonation, Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own will. Right, like diary entries yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, it was that's a really cool way to to go about it and really paint the picture of this monster that you're creating, yeah. Especially in the late Victorian period, you know, that long ago. Right. But then we'll probably find out someone else probably did it <laughs> two years before him and you know, it seems like everybody's copying everybody always all the time. Right. Human beings are the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. So then, you know, that book goes on and becomes very popular and on down the road and such. But I think it's different what is looked upon greatly in literary fiction. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the movies, mm-hmm. they're trying to push boundaries with visual aspects. It, it makes it more accessible, too. Right. You know, because not everybody wants to sit down and read a book, even at, at, at all statuses, you know. Right. You know, like very low end. You can be a, a very poor person and at least be able to afford to go to the movies and take in this information so that when the movies do hit, it becomes much more widespread. And the fact that it's got a visual context to it, I think it freaks people out even more. And so, you know, when Universal started looking into doing something like Dracula or something like that, one, by everything that I've seen, they, they looked into doing a pretty close interpretation of what the book was yeah and then they ended up you know of course by the time they get around to really putting some money into it <laughs> well there's that pesky little great depression, depression that hits yeah and so they decide well maybe we shouldn't go that way but there had already been a popular play going for, for quite some time right and with that they said well maybe that's a better way to streamline our finances and stuff but what what's interesting to me about it is, is by the time they start getting into production on it it's kind of looked down on as it's a lesser than project. Like, how dare they do something so smutty right. in a way, you know? Right, because the other houses like MGM and, and Paramount were kind of more doing highfalutin, uh, involved right. stories and all that stuff. And, and I guess, well, and, and we should say that Universal was owned by the Lamley family and kind of come from humble beginnings kind of thing. And uh, right. very down to earth for this time period, uh, uh, like uh, uh, Jewish investors back in this in this day this family father and son kind of team running the show so uh, they had been making some stuff through the silent film era you know because they Mm -hmm. did dr jekyll and mr hyde and uh, lon chaney was their guy right lon chaney senior they had done um the hunchback of notre dame right and of course the famous phantom of the opera right 
a lot of people say that hasn't been topped since. You know, the, the movie's right. been remade a thousand times, and but the Lon Chaney version is the one to watch. Right. They had started doing that stuff, and then once the talkies came in, I think Dracula was pretty much going to be their first big talkie horror project, right? Right. Being that they decided to make the movie like they like the play was, the interesting thing, too, mm-hmm. about that was that Lone Chaney was originally Dracula in the play, and then when he left the play, mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi took over the part. And so by the time they were ready to do the movie, since they had already worked with Lone Chaney so much, they were like, well, let's try to get him. But he ended up dying before mm. they were able to get this thing off of the ground. And so then they were like, well, let's get that other guy that was in the play. And so that's how Bella Lugosi ends up becoming Dracula. Right, yeah. And he had those kind of devilish good looks. You know, yeah. Lon Chaney was an interesting looking guy, but I wouldn't say he was, yeah. you know, he would have been probably a more monstrous Dracula, kind of like the right. German Nosferatu from, what is it, F.W. Murrow, right? Right. He would have been, might have probably gone that route from the 1922 movie and um what ends up happening though you know bella lugosi comes in with his charming good looks and his incredibly huge ego (laughs) hungarian ego yeah yeah and um ends up so informing what dracula is that it's with us to this day yeah over 91 years later you know there are far worse things waiting man than death it's so weird to me that that the way he talks informs how I think we even said this in our cool bad guys to this day when someone says Dracula a lot of even younger people go blue yeah right that's definitely playing off of his Hungarian accent and stuff like that and then but not just that but the look that he has right yeah he has that kind of strong brow that Eastern European look to him but he's a good looking guy and, and you know stands up tall dark hair but that slick back look widow's peak and his weird little uh, double jointed wrist thing anyway yeah <laughs> be there I was just watching a, a documentary about all this stuff, all these Universal Monster movies, and one of the things they talked about was back in this time period, too, this early talky time period, when they would um, release a movie, mm-hmm. they would do multiple language versions of it. So there would be like a German version and a French version. They would do like six movies, right. and each with different stars, right? Right. And so one of the things they talked about was the Spanish version of that movie. Uh, A lot of people consider that movie to be a better movie as far as direction and look. And uh, they did a lot more cool camera work and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they said, though, was the Spanish-speaking guy who was playing Count Dracula in the Spanish version of it Mm -hmm. wasn't very good. (laughs) And so what ended up happening was the director being very dynamic and cool and coming up with these cool crane shots and all that stuff that nobody else was doing that made the movie come alive and it helped compensate for the fact that this guy wasn't very dynamic in his portrayal of dracula right whereas when you go to our american version with bella lugosi as the lead he is so charismatic and so entrenched in the character that you almost don't really need the fancy camera work he's the thing you right. can't take your eyes off of because that movie is a little dull in the way it's shot. Yeah. Yeah, the one thing that I will give props to uh, how the movie does certain things is lighting. The, mm-hmm. They know the strong points of what to light on Bella to really make the character stand out. Like that thing he does when he's doing his hypnotizing mode. How yeah, yeah. Everything's black around him, but the pinholes, mm-hmm. you know, the lights hitting his eyes. and still lo- That shot's still amazing to watch today. You know, especially the black and white looks so beautiful and everything. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, you know, and, and starting out even that song at the beginning in the opening credits. 
that really gets you into that that feeling of the time period it's in and everything like that right you know i wouldn't go as far as to say it's super high on my list of like great horror films right but i think that it the, same yeah the aesthetic of it is something that even if you're not totally invested in what you're watching as far as it's super entertaining to you right just looking at the aesthetic yeah i just wonder though you know what would the movie have been if that spanish director right had directed the american version because right they were showing some of the differences in the shots and it was so much more dynamic yeah and uh, yeah wow i think it would have definitely elevated it up to the level of a frankenstein you know oh right yeah for sure this is very old wine. I hope you will like it. Yeah, because there's something, it falls a little flat. You know, when you're a young kid right. and it, you're, you don't have a memory bank of movies anyway. So, like, I think I saw this probably, I, mean, I, I can't say for sure, but I probably would have been like eight or something. And it was in, you know, it was cool. Mm. But it, it was already, you know, I'm surrounded by the Count on Sesame Street. <laughs> right. uh, oh! Greetings, it is I, the Count, and it's time to answer that fascinating question. What is the Sesame Street number of the day? Uh, uh. That's what I mean, how influential right. it is, yeah. Count Chocula cereal and, you know. Right. Don't be scared. I'm the super sweet monster with the super sweet new cereal, Count Chocula. Dracula's fucking everywhere. Right. He's in the Bugs Bunny cartoons with the Abracadabra. Focus. I am a vampire. Oh, yeah? Abacadabra. He doesn't look so much like Bela Lugosi, but he he talks just like him. He has that Hungarian. Yeah. Yeah. In the Pink Panther thing, too, that's where they get that from. That's where that blue blue comes from. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what he does. He just shows up. He doesn't speak in that. And you know how nobody talks on the Pink Panther cartoons? <laughs> oh, right, right. He just shows up and does his little wings out, and he goes, blah, blah, like that really <laughs> fast. <laughs> and, like, the Pink Panther never gets scared. Blah, blah, blah. But going back to the look and design, like we said, you know, uh, we have the handsome Bela Lugosi compared to, like, the more literary version of the Nosferatu Max Shrek interpretation. He was kind of always kind of unkept and gross looking, right? right? Ratty looking. <laughs> right. And, and, and the Bela Lugosi version is that, you know, they're doing him in pretty much the young youthful version all the time. And uh, he's wearing, he's like impeccably dressed with like a you know, a satin cape and, and a black suit and all that stuff. And then his hair, like you said, you were saying before, his hair slicked back and you right. know, with the widow's peak thing and uh, looking pretty sharp, right? Right. So yeah. that's also like new to the idea of Dracula and uh, becomes the signature for the rest of history. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like even today, if you go to Halloween stores, or uh, when Halloween decorations come out in August, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the the Count Dracula still looks yeah. like Bela Lugosi's Count Dracula. It's just weird how that happened. Yeah. Yeah, so, the, so Dracula ended up being a big hit for Universal. It came out in February of 1931, mm-hmm. which is a weird, weird time to release it. But yeah. They released it in 31 and a huge hit. 
from what I had read too, that Universal was in kind of a down year, mm-hmm. about a year and a half. They weren't having a whole lot of hits, and this was one that came out of the park for them and helped them stabilize to kind of move forward. Which I think is probably why they decided, hey, we let's double down on this stuff. What, what other monsters we got? What other Victorian monsters can we choose? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. The blood is the life. Mr. Renfield. Yeah, my history with the Dracula character, I think, as I said in the Boo episode, was that one of my first vampire characters I ever saw was in Salem's Lot. Oh, right. Correct. Yeah. You did say that. So later on in years, I think probably around like 86, 87, my sister was really into a movie called Fright Night with vampires. Right. I, for some reason, as a kid, really liked that movie. I thought it was really cool. Mm-hmm. And so I started getting into the whole vampire thing. And then my mother, of course, was just like, well, you know, there was this one. And she started talking about the, the Bela Lugosi one. And so I watched that. And, of course, as a kid, it's black and white. Yeah. And it's really slow pace. I didn't get it. The only thing that I remember thinking, what you, what even surprises me now is that it's, it, it's, like, it's black and white, so I knew it was old when I was watching it as a kid. Yeah. But still how there's still toys that look like him. Yeah. In the toy stores and decorations look like him and the costumes that they sell. Yeah, you're picking up on the influence all the way back then. Yeah. Right, yeah. I remember thinking like I you know, I don't find this particularly scary as a kid, but it's weird how he's still everywhere, like as if the movie just released and it's a big hit, you know? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I was inundated, so I can't say, I can't put a finger on exactly when I saw it. And then I, pro- right. you know, I probably saw the uh, Abbott and Costello stuff way before. Oh, right, right. Seeing the actual horror movie stuff, because they used to do those on every Saturday when I was a little, little guy, right. like five, six years old, and my sister would watch them. And so right. I, that means I would be watching them. <laughs> <laughs> As big of a hit as it was, I'm surprised it didn't spawn more sequels than it did, but it, of course, spawned some sequels. It was, it's was it got Dracula's Daughter in 1936 and then Son of Dracula in 1943. But it's weird how, as we move on through the different movies that they end up doing with different monsters, how this one gets a little less mm-hmm. sequels than the other ones, even though it was one of the first big monster hits. Well, and um, one of the things about the one you said uh the daughter of dracula right her pulse is weak dr goth growing weaker all your skill can't help her now she's under a spell that can be broken only by me or death i am dracula's daughter that particular movie uh, dracula's daughter there was this kind of lesbian innuendo thing that was going on in that movie where she's coming on to uh, the young pretty woman and all that stuff okay and uh, the PCA is kicking in. It's starting to kick their butts. And uh, that's one of the ones that where they're like, okay, this is it, guys. This is it. Right. And basically what happens after the Dracula's Daughter in 1936, Universal has to... It's basically the end of their uh, their first tier of these classic horror movies. That was the sign right there where they said, okay, we got to put this on hiatus and kind of recalculate for a little bit right so there's a two-year hiatus from universal on on uh, horror films while they're trying to figure this out and in that time period the lamley uh family loses control of universal right the father of the company the the patriarch he had a problem with overspending and he would also gamble on his movies becoming hits 
and uh, uh, he'd lost a lot <laughs> and ended up losing the whole uh, fortune of the family. And um, wow. what ended up happening was they ended up um, selling uh, Universal to the Standard Capital Corporation in 36, 37, around there. And that kind of makes a big change in Universal Pictures in general. So that whole family feel and that first go from, from the first Dracula, 1931, all the way to this one, 36, that's starts to fade off right. from that point out. It pretty much disappears. And now I'll leave you. Good night. So then... We're going to flip into uh, the next one, uh, which is Frankenstein, not Stein. <laughs> My name is Frankenstein! As far as I go, for going with these original tiered movies, th this yeah. one for me is definitely the best. Yeah. Oh, I love this movie. Yeah. I think it looks beautiful. I think right. it's acted beautifully. And yeah. everything about it just looks so great. It's still iconic to me. Yeah. When I watch it, I still get this feeling of like, you know, like I, I, even as a kid, when I saw these movies, it wasn't something where I was scared of it. Right. But it does have a presence about it. That yes. Makes you feel kind of like Halloween time. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of the things you got to do with these movies is kind of realize, kind of try and be empathetic to the time they come out in yeah. and put yourself in the context of the audience of 1932 or 1931 or whatever, and they're not seeing anything ever before. Right. They're barely seeing this stuff in silent movies. Right. This is definitely the first time they're seeing any of this with sound. Right. And so it's relatively mind-blowing. This is in that era uh, when they start spreading the rumors about, even though some of it was marketing with the people passing out and, right. and, and running out of the uh, theater in terror kind of stuff, you know? You got to also think, too, that, you know, how big was the book of Frankenstein back in 1932 you know yeah. was it a popular book at the time right. or, or was it kind of one of those petered out right right and so how many people even one knew the story and if they did know the story you know the way Frankenstein is described in the book or the monster I should say Mm -hmm. uh, when you see how they go on to make uh, Boris Karloff's monster look like and everything yeah. it's just it's a it's it's a shocking look right but it's not at all like the literary. No. Which, by the by the way, the book came out in uh, January of 1818, and the author right. was Mary Shelley. Like we had mentioned, she was she was in that uh, competition, right. the writing competition, a few years earlier. Right. I think because Mary Shelley is on the run with her husband mm -hmm. because I think there was something kind of um, I don't know if he was married before or something yeah. or she was too young or something right. like that. Something like that. So they were kind of traveling through Europe anyway, kind of running from the wall. And they had, they had kind of come across some of these stories that helped plant the idea of Frankenstein and ga like ghoulishness of gathering dead bodies and all that stuff. Right. Plus in that time too, the, you know, the, the very early stages of uh, what we would call modern medicine, you know, there was a lot of experimentation going on yeah. with electricity and mm -hmm. dead limbs and being able to make a severed monkey's hand move long after it had been cut off and right. stuff like that and, or hearts beat with electricity. Right. This storm will be magnificent. All the electrical secrets of heaven. And this time we're ready. Hey, Fritz. The interesting thing, too, is she's, to this day, 
she's still considered the birth mother, basically, of like science fiction. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is because that's awesome. Right. It's because her her horror melds science. Right. Right. Alchemy, you know, as they probably would say back then, or right. experimentation, and and like I said earlier, the beginnings of modern medicine. You know. Right. Is being portrayed in her book. This is so interesting to me because coming off of, you know, Dracula, which is the first big monster movie from Universal, which is pulling a lot from lure mm-hmm. and like old tales and, you know, and yeah. you know, all of that stuff. And then she's basically taking something from science and then from, making this monster out of right, it. Right, right. Right. And it's weird to think, you know, I, I just just kind of hit me right now looking at that date, January 1818. That's over 200 years ago now. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's craziness. Yeah. And and especially even where women were back yeah. then. I mean, the, right. you know, the, and what they had to go through, even to just get education. Like mm-hmm. a lot of them would just, well, you know, you're a woman, so you got to cook and you got to do this stuff. What do you need an education for and everything? And the fact that one, apparently, her mother was a very big feminist, and and the feminist movement at the time back then. And her mother died yeah. during birth. Yeah, she died very young, and so there's that already sets into that. Right. That thing in her mind of death and, and right. you know, it's kind of... Plus, that's that time period where a lot of people died easily, but... Right. Yeah. Oh, I got a splinter. I'm oh, sorry. I don't know what you're going to do for you. <laughs> we have, we're going to have to make arrangements. <laughs> Did you write your will yet? Isn't this what we believe in? Unconventional approaches to living. After all, why should we not have such an arrangement? I do not own you. You are free to be with whomever you please. Oh, but I don't want to be with anyone else. I thought it was good and interesting. If you're into the history of this kind of stuff, there's a decent movie called Mary Shelley uh, uh, with one of the Fanning girls playing her. Yep. Uh, and it kind of tells her whole story and talks about her obsession with death yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You know. it's, it's a really great movie. I, I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think it's from like maybe four or five years ago. Yeah. But the movie Frankenstein, yeah, they had been kind of portrayed in like short, short films. Mm-hmm. Uh, like silent films, like on an Edison reel and all that stuff, and it was kind of a goofy take on it and all that. And then, and then there was the Gollum movie, which was a silent film uh, from the mid twenties, right? Where they were taking from the Jewish lore the character of the Gollum, and uh, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff was taken from that mm-hmm. to kind of shape. Uh, what this uh, motion picture was going to look like, Frankenstein. Which is good, because, I mean, that th- there's a short story. I'm not sure how old the short story goes back, but the short story on the Gollum. And it's very, like, it, it has that, it's steeped in lure, and mm-hmm. it's steeped in the mi- mystery of what's out there in the bog and all of that stuff, you know. It's, I should say, it's. I think it's Gollum. We're saying Gollum because of uh, Lord of the Rings, but oh, I think yes. in he- Hebrew it's, Gollum, it's supposed to be yeah. Golem, yeah. Golem and Globus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, from... Uh... Canon Films, the company of the future. Yeah, but um, the the budget in 1931 was about $270,000, right? right. And, uh, but the movie ends up grossing, what, $12 million? $12 million. Crazy. Back in the Depression era. That's, in the, yeah. that's during the Great Depression. Yeah. A movie was like 20 cents back then for a ticket. Right. Right. 20 cents a ticket 
times 60 million tickets is $12 million. That's insanity for 20 cents. <laughs> and it's, it's important to note that uh, Frankenstein opens in November of 1931, and Dracula came out in February, so they had two big hits, yeah. these monster hits, right. in, in that 1931. Yeah, and obviously all this is new, right? So the whole like uh, blockbuster season thing doesn't even exist right. for another 50 years. So uh, or <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's just one of those things where I guess people are out and they, oh, look, a little picture house. Let's yeah. see what they got. What's this Frankenstein all about? <laughs> we are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So what about your first experience with Frankenstein, my friend, Tim? You know, I it's kind of the same with Dracula and uh, Frankenstein for me. It's My sister was seven years older than me and was really into horror films. Mm. So I can remember watching a lot of Saturday matinee kind of horror movies with her right. in the late 70s and early 80s and all that stuff. So I would imagine I saw it around then. And then, of course, just like Dracula, he was inundated in our culture. So there's right. there's the Munsters, you know, which was yep. on in syndication in TV. This is Herman Munster. You can't treat my niece that way. Usually I'm not a violent man, but I'm coming over there right now and punch you in the nose. And uh, the accompanying to Count Chocula was Frankenberry cereal, so there's mm -hmm. that. Yep. Frankenberry cereal is coming your way. How about a monster for breakfast today? You know, he popped up everywhere. My first experience with the character was because of the monsters. Yeah. My mom used to drop me off in front of the TV while she made dinner or whatever, mm -hmm. and there'd be a string of older shows. So it'd be like the Muppet Show would come on, and then as it got mm -hmm. a little later, the Monsters would come on. And I was, as a kid, I was always fascinated with that, and I liked mm -hmm. uh, Fred Gwynn in that part. Mm -hmm. I was really, I really liked. Really the goofy. Yeah. And after Monsters went uh, off, Frankenstein was showing that night. The movie was. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was one of those situations where even though it was black and white, I, as a kid, I was just fascinated by that movie. I right. really loved it, just the look of it and everything about it. And I remember even being really sad for the the, mon the monster character, too. Which is good. That's, that's yeah. kind of the goal of the story, right? Right. And maybe because that was one of those, out of these characters that we're covering, one of the ones that hit me at such an early age that mm -hmm. it might be one of the things that helps it be one of my favorite movies yeah out of the universal i think it's a lot of people's you know yeah. well there's, there's anybody who's into camp especially or right. or, or uh you know kind of like vintage shit you know right. especially dudes if they're into like old scary movies and stuff they're definitely into frankenstein i have I have fucking Karloff's Frankenstein tattooed on my forearm. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, so going into the look of that, uh, mm -hmm. how they, like we were, tr you know, leading into, it's not the same as the... Um, Mary Shelley description, yeah. She kind of just doesn't go into great... She's descriptive, but without right. really, you know, they. she basically describes it as eight feet tall and th thin, the skin is so pale that you can see through it, basically. Yeah, like yellowish skin. You, and, right, yellowish yeah. skin, and you can see all the veins and the right. blood pumping and that you could tell all the appendages had been sewn on to him and all that right so yeah she gives you 
she gives you the ingredients of what it could look like and then mm-hmm. your imagination puts it together while you're reading the book and which is a smart that's a yeah. smart way to to do it you know right as we talked about in the thing show when yeah in that short story he really went into detail about it, what it looked like and and these kind of ruins it when i heard yeah we were like oh that's silly <laughs> right yeah so um Jack Pierce, he's kind of taking over the role of the Universal's head makeup guy from Lon Chaney, filling that void, because Lon Chaney was the makeup guy, the man of a thousand faces, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. Lon Chaney Sr. we're talking about. And um, so he ends up getting the the job, and Boris Karloff is relatively unknown at the time and an English immigrant, you know, theater actor kind of thing. Yes comes to america and he gets cast for his features he has good height Mm -hmm. and an interesting face but he's also really kind of gaunt looking you know skinny and and frail yeah he definitely has a unique look it's like he's interesting moderately handsome but also Mm -hmm. he does kind of represent almost like death in his face there's something about it yeah no for sure and his eyes too though oh his eyes are everything his eyes are everything these puppy dog eyes that (laughs) i think help you really latch on to that character. Mm-hmm. Totally. This creature of yours should be kept under guard. Mark my words. He will prove dangerous. Dangerous? Have you never wanted to do anything that was dangerous? Where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond? And so, um, you know, using a lot of uh, what would now be caustic <laughs> cancer-causing tech, you know, materials, you'd build up right. cotton and, and whatever chemical it was he was using on him. It would take forever to, to build up this face and this head, but he basically came up with the idea of the flat head that we've seen. And basically his thought behind that, I guess, was... Well, you know, maybe this doctor's not into details. You cut off the top of the head and you just kind of fill it in real quick. You don't put the top of the skull back on and that's why it's right. flat, yeah, right? Yeah, the look is great. And then because of the way they're doing this in the script with um, electricity, he adds the um, conducting rods in right. his neck. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's iconic. For the electricity. And that's obviously iconic now, yep. right? And then all the scarring and all that stuff. But then the, the, real, the, the, the coup de grace to the whole thing was, you know, the this was a time period where dentistry wasn't very popular <laughs> and Boris Karloff even at this age he was wearing dentures and he had no teeth right right so what he did was take his dentures out when he was in costume and it made it gave him him this sunken look right. on his cheeks and all that stuff that was like inhuman because of the lack of it so it adds without knowing it's there yep and then when you hear that this, like if you're hearing this for the first time and you know the look of uh, Frankenstein's monster so well, now then all of a sudden it's this huge light bulb goes off. You're like, oh, that's what's weird with that character yep. is his face is sunken in because he has no teeth. Well, I mean, everything that uh, everyone's bringing to the table, Karloff, of course, is bringing his great acting chops plus his very unique look. Mm-hmm. And then you have Jack Pierce bringing in his makeup and everything that that brings to the character. And then all the technicians behind the camera bringing what they bring to make the mood of the film look like it does. Mm-hmm. The black and white lends so much to it. And then, of course, you can't forget the the makeup, which is on the monster, is green. Yeah. And uh, because in the black and white, it makes it look dull gray. And those photos came out that it was green. They were going to do Son of Frankenstein right. in uh, in color, and then they decided against it for okay, yeah. continuity and, and just style reasons, right? Right. It would have thrown the whole thing off. And so now that's synonymous. That right. look, 
with the bolts and the flat top head and the green skin is synonymous with Frankenstein. It is. The other thing too is the the giant platform shoes and what they did was they put they lined the bottoms of the shoes with lead, lead which right. which you know made him have to kind of like do that quick step where he dragged his feet in a way and he's leaning way forward right. to kind of get his momentum going and it, it gives him that lumbering slow step which is you know again put yourself in the mind of you know we've all seen this a thousand times since we can first remember i mean even us guys you know if you're younger and you're say 20 years old you've still seen this character a bazillion times over and over again right. it's so played out in your head that you, you don't it's you don't even second guess it you have to imagine people seeing this in 1931 for the first time oh god yeah. it's gotta fucking throw you for a loop you know oh, it had to i mean for me even as a kid it did very effective so the people back then i'm sure was like what the hell am i looking at here and that look that they came up with right that Jack Pierce did with his makeup and everything. The fact that that took a property that was made, created 200 years ago by Mary Shelley and then have had so many features made about it afterwards. I mean, literally like a, a bazillion, bazillion yeah, times. A bazillion times that thing has been remade. And that definitive look that Jack Pierce came up with in the Universal ones is the same one we follow today. And it has never changed. Right. Which is a still on copyright for another uh, five years, right? Or right till tw- well, twenty twenty six is twenty twenty six. Whatever that yeah. is, is is the universal patent on the, the Kar- Karloff look mm-hmm. finally expires? Right. Well, I'm sure that Universal though will get their top brass lawyers on that thing and find a way to extend it a bit. But anyway. But well, you know, speaking of the look of the film, we can't we'd be remiss not to mention the director. Yes. James Whale was very influenced by German expressionism and uh, their play with lighting and shadows and all that stuff. And it shows, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the way he shoots this movie is so fucking cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the other thing, too, is for the laboratory equipment. Oh, yeah, right. I can't remember the guy's name, but there was this dude in L.A. that had made all this shit. Mm -hmm. And just he he just kind of had it. And um, Universal had to have it. And uh, he's like, well... You can rent it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All this equipment. And so part of that $270,000 budget was paying this guy $10,000, which in 1931 was yeah. enormous. It was like probably like a million bucks to today, you know, right? to, to be able to rent all this crazy equipment that creates lightning bolts and visual stunning uh, displays of electricity right. and arcing and all that right. stuff and literally has no purpose whatsoever but to look cool right nothing nothing it's all for show right you know? yeah he was going through tesla's garbage at the time or something yeah yeah right <laughs> right right except tesla's shit did stuff oh i saw it made hugh jackman disappear <laughs> or did it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why every magic trick has a third act. The hardest part. The part we call the prestige. But yeah, the look of the film is absolutely amazing. It's stunning to look at. And what I think James Whale puts his stamp on this piece of art mm-hmm. is uh, what happens with the reverberations because of this film comes out and everyone sees it and then starts pecking off of it. Oh, yeah. Stealing it for their films, their visual cues. Now, now as we were talking, you know, we talk about today how there's nothing original and everybody mm-hmm. regurgitates and all that stuff. But we do have to mention that uh, not only was he 
influenced by German Expressionism, there was another uh, film from MGM called The Magician, 1926. Oh, okay. It was a silent film, and it kind of had a bit of a Frankenstein-y vibe in a way, where there's a, there is a laboratory in a mm-hmm. tower up on a hill, <laughs> this castle-like tower on a hill, right. with lightning going off behind. And at the climax, <laughs> the tower explodes in this big triumphant thing, right? I want the movie to end with a big explosion. And uh, anyway, James <laughs> Whale very much took that and said, I'm going to apply this to my movie uh, seven years later, six years later, whatever. Right. And, 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 and that's where that iconic look of the castle on the hill with the lightning bolts. I mean, Dracula kind of had it too. But, right, um, right. It's not uh, as pronounced. Right, right. Yeah. But Bride of Frankenstein ends with the tower exploding and, right. uh, you know, the, the caving in on itself, just like it does in The Magician from 1926. Right. And as you just mentioned, The Bride of Frankenstein, which is the sequel to Frankenstein, mm-hmm. uh, is directed once again by James Whale. It picks up right where the last one left off, literally. Right. And it also, ha- because it has the same director, has that same visual style carrying through, so it feels like one big piece of a movie. Right, right, yeah. Well, and here's what's interesting is those two movies together, Frankenstein mm-hmm. and The Bride of Frankenstein, basically encompass the novel of Mary Shelley the, from the beginning, mm-hmm. mostly to the end. I mean, the, the book ends up in the North Pole and all that stuff. Right. I know that Boris Karloff was very much against uh, the monster speaking in The Bride yeah. of Frankenstein, and he, he, he fought against it and fought against it, and then he lost. Remember... This is bread. Bread. <laughs> bread. But mm-hmm. it's become also iconic in a way. Oh, yeah. You know, the talking and all that stuff. We, you know, fast forward like 70 years to Phil Hartman <laughs> on Saturday Night Live doing Frankenstein with the fire. It's like the funniest goddamn thing ever. Yeah, you know? it is. Oh, God, I love it. But, I mean, going back to the Frankenstein movies, at the time that this came out, sequels, they weren't a big deal at that time. Mm-hmm. Serials were. Right. But not sequels. And so for this to come out like it did, pick up right where the first one left off, was really unique, especially for the time. Right. Because the original the original Frankenstein, they make it seem like it's a permanent ending. Right. You know, because they couldn't fit the whole novel in in this hour and a half movie. So there's right. that, you know, the, the windmill, the famous windmill scene where it of course. caves in on itself. Right. And the sequel doesn't tell the whole story of the book, but it does fill in a lot from the book. And continues to tell the rest of the story where right. he learns to talk and he wants a, a companion. Plus, I mean, Universal saw that they made $12 million off the first one. So they're just like, let's get another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, next one, please. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But yeah, so it goes on to have several sequels. It has Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, and then The Ghost of Frankenstein. Bride right. of Frankenstein 35. Uh, Son of Frankenstein 39, 1942 for the Ghost of Frankenstein. Well, what we should say, though, is Karloff, at the end of Son of Frankenstein, he basically is like, this is the conclusion of the story. And right. Yeah. I am taking off my flat top head and bolts for the last time. I am not doing this character ever again. Right. He's like, screw you guys. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And one of the very special things that the movie Son of Frankenstein gives us later fans, like you and I are, yes, is a little film called Young Frankenstein. Yes, Mel, Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein from like 1976. Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs, damen und herren, from what was once an inarticulate mass of lifeless tissues, 
May I now present a cultured, sophisticated man about town. It's a, it's a collaboration between actually him and Gene Wilder write it together. Mm-hmm. And it today is still one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, Constantly, I laugh just as hard now as I did <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago at some of the stuff in Young Frankenstein. You are not evil. You are good. <laughs> It does very much help to have seen these movies. And, w- mm-hmm. you know, what if you watch Son of Frankenstein and then you, you know Young Frankenstein very well, you'll realize, oh, a lot of the material that Gene and Mel pulled from was from the third movie, Son of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Werewolf? Werewolf. Their castle. Why are you talking that way? I thought you wanted to. No, I don't want to. Suit yourself. I'm easy. Well, Young Frankenstein is definitely a love letter yeah. to Son of Frankenstein, for sure, no doubt. And I think, as I told why I fell in love with the original 1931 Frankenstein, when I fell in love with that film, the look, the aesthetic of it and everything, there's DNA in that reason, in the same DNA of why I fell in love with Young Frankenstein, because it looks so much for sure like... The, those old films it's a connective tissue to those films oh yeah the music and they he, he even found that the same equipment right from the laboratory he found all of that equipment hidden away on the universal lot and got them to pull it all out and yep. and reuse it again so that the victor von frankenstein's uh <laughs> laboratory looked very similar right. one of the things that the, so for my personal experience with young frankenstein is is i'm I'll, i'm a little older than you and and like i said the movie came out in 76 and then it was on cable in like 78 79 and okay. i can remember sitting down with my family at that age and watching it with them and they're laughing their asses off and I'm a little it's all, all the jokes are over my head like the whole oh you men are all alike seven or eight quick ones and you're off with the boys to boast and brag you better keep your mouth shut oh I think I love him I think I even asked my mom when Frankenstein, you know, when the Peter Boyle's Frankenstein is mounting and screwing uh, Madeline Kahn for the first time, and she starts. That whole thing. I remember turning to my mom and going, "Why is she singing?" <laughs> I don't get it. She's like, "Later, kid." Later. Yeah, much later. She's, I remember she just kind of, kind of got embarrassed and looked over at my dad. The, the idea, though, is I remember loving that movie because my family loved it, and I didn't understand it, but continuing to watch it repeatedly until I grew into the knowledge of the jokes, you know, just loving the whole idea. I could, I can understand, obviously, the putting on the Ritz. Oh, right, yeah, the broad comedy. The, the broad sure. comedy yeah. I could get, <laughs> and I thought it was funny. It was almost like I have to like this movie. Right. Because my family likes it so much, they quote it all the time, and right. and then once once I grew into the humor, I, I it, it took over. I probably love that movie more than the rest of my family does now at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> Would the doctor care for a brandy before retiring? No. Thank you. Some warm milk, perhaps. No, thank you very much. No thanks. Oh, Valtine. 
Nothing. Thank you. I'm a little tired. Well, I didn't come to Young Frankenstein until probably 91, 92, so pretty late oh, really? in the game for me coming to this film. And I came to it through my sister had a boyfriend that worked at Blockbuster, and he used to bring over movies after he got off of work. Oh, wow. And they would watch some, and then he would bring some for me and stuff like that. So he brought this one one night for us all to watch, and he was like, you're going to like this one. This is the funniest movie ever made. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> right. Whatever is black and white. Right, exactly. Uh, but the minute it started, I recognized visually how it was connected to the other films. Yeah. And I was immediately hooked in and then, of course, watched it. And it went on to become my one of my favorite comedies ever. I mean, he was right. Yeah, okay. It won me over, and it's still a favorite today. Said I give? And some very masterful performances by oh, yeah. everybody involved. Terry Garr, Madeline Kahn, mm-hmm. Gene Wilder. Marty Feldman. Kenny Mars is the inspector. And, and if you watch Son of Frankenstein, yeah, they took that character straight out of that. You know, I didn't know that until years later. I'm like, holy shit. Wow, that character is exactly. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, right. But then you got Cloris Leachman. Yeah, Cl- Cloris Leachman. How can I forget her? Yeah, and oh, yeah. Peter Boyle as the monster. And let's let's not forget one of the greatest cameos ever on film by Gene Hackman. Where are you going? I was going to make espresso. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that's taken straight from Bride of Frankenstein, where he's the old blind hermit in the in the thing. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. That's I, I, I want every time. Every, all these things you're bringing up, I want to say that's the funniest part of the movie. But it's not. No, it's because the they're all movie. the funniest part of the movie. Right. They're all hilarious. Right. Well, well, let's not get too carried away. I'm sure we're going to cover this film in a show down the pipe. So it's, it's right. We're getting carried away. But right. um, moving on. Open this goddamn door. I'll kick your rotten head. Heads in! Mommy! Well, let me ask you this. Why do you think this universal Frankenstein monster, uh, the look of it, latched on to the public consciousness like it did? I think it's that fact what I was talking about, the dentures with the flat head thing. Mm-hmm. The, the lack of teeth. Right. It's, it's like something um, ghoulish about it, almost zombie-like. Oh, yeah. yeah. With, with the, the weighted eyelids. Well, I, also, I think, too, that what helps it carry on in the public consciousness and in pop art and all of that stuff is not only is the look that Karloff and Pierce bring with the makeup and their performance and everything, but the movie endears, too, because it keeps finding new generations because it's a great movie. Yeah. A great set of movies, actually. And But the other thing is, is those pictures came out about how the skin was painted green to make it look a certain kind of gray mm-hmm. during the black and white thing, and that gave it a kind of cartoony kind of vibe to it. So mm-hmm. when you see Herman Munster and he's painted green, it's welcoming to kids. It doesn't make it so much a monster, especially when you put a a certain kind of voice to it, a lumbering dummy kind of voice to it, mm-hmm. then it's it, what's to be afraid of, kids. And so the minute you can take something and market it to kids, I think it immediately can go into the public consciousness and pop art. Right. And it can stick around for a long time because you can market it to kids and make toys and all of that stuff out of it. So yeah. I think that's why it has such a lasting look to it. Universal was smart about that and the way that they played around with that. And so I think that's that's just amazing. Mr. Meets the Monster. It's Elvin and the Chipmunks. Here we come! Meet Frankenstein. My baby's alive! 
We forgot to mention, though, that uh, uh, Igor is played by Bella Lugosi in Son oh, of Frankenstein. Right. which yeah. is <laughs> It's Dracula and Frankenstein together. Before Carla was casted, he was offered the role of uh, playing the monster in Frankenstein. And, um, Bella Lugosi, you mean? I guess the story goes, you know, we, uh, they talk about it in, in Ed Wood, right? <laughs> you know, and that's an exaggerated version of it. Right, but right. the true story goes is that the script hadn't been fully developed yet. So what Bella Lugosi read was not very impressive. <laughs> right. And he's like, I, there's not enough. Yeah, he felt insulted, basically, by the office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially being so handsome. One of the things I heard about going, you know, just to kind of jump back to Bella real quick, there was another. <laughs> there was this old woman on this uh, documentary who was like a younger girl on the set at the time was talking about how for a guy who couldn't be seen in a mirror as Dracula, he loved mirrors. Bella Lugosi said he would walk around the set off camera, you know, when this when they weren't rolling, looking at himself in the mirror, holding a mirror. <laughs> Like walking around and practicing the whole time. I am Dracula. Saying that over and over well, again. Well, he's, he's method. So man. he was really, really <laughs> fucking full of himself. And I think that is part of where that, you know, in Ed Wood when he talks about it. How dare that asshole bring a towel off? You think it takes talent to play Frankenstein? It's all on makeup and then grunting. I think there's a little bit of truth to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, Bella, as great as he was as, as Dracula, he was kind of one notish and ended up being kind of a burnout actor. So, right. I mean, Karloff was a really great actor and had a lot of range and had a really good career that lasted quite a few years. So, to be honest, he's a, he's a better he's a, he's a better actor than oh, Bela yeah, Lugosi. I mean, and Karloff, aside from being a fantastic actor, very expressive actor in his face, he's also got just this amazing voice. Yeah, right. It was very deep. Right. Yeah. I mean, anyone who knows the Grinch who stole Christmas knows his voice. <laughs> yeah, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You. Well, that's actually the guy who did Tony the Tiger's voice singing The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. They're great! Uh, but uh, Boris Karloff, he does the narration. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. Hey there, folks. We just wanted to let you know in case you wanted to reach out and have any questions for us or even wanted to answer some of the questions that we've posed to each other during the show, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at at TFTFP Podcast. Yes. Sometimes you might want to use Twitter instead. Yes. And, it, and if that's the case, mm-hmm. you go to uh, the address there. It's a little different. It's Podcast TFTFP. Hey, if you want to send us a shiny old email... You can do that at tftfppodcast at gmail.com. That is beyond the truth, my friend. Mm. And do us all a favor and like, subscribe, and review us because it helps us out. And, well, let's just say this about Karloff's talent is it ended up securing him not only one monster in Universal, but two. Well, and that kind of leads us into the next film is The Mummy, right? Yes, sir. The Mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. The Mummy is played by Boris Karloff. And what's interesting, too, is in this movie, The Mummy 
This comes out in December of 1932, so this is... A year later after yeah. Frankenstein. So, so he's jumping into this role, uh, Karloff is, mm-hmm. has a $200,000 budget, ends up being a pretty pretty decent hit, more of a hit in, U- in the UK than in the US. Oh, yeah. But right. it starts out, if you watch it, it starts out with the Dracula music. Yeah, exactly. They were saying in this documentary that the movie really is, it really is just Dracula all over again. Right. They're kind of biting off their own style. Yeah. And they're like, well, let's just re- rehash this. And then instead of Transylvania, it will be Egypt. And, uh, yep. you know, they, they will enchant this woman. No, no, no. It, it definitely goes through the same motions. And I wouldn't even say it's as good. Like I say, I don't put the Bella Lugosi Dracula on a, a super high pedestal. Or anything. Right. I think it's a good movie and yeah. it's watchable. But uh, it's, it doesn't have anywhere near the flamboyant visual style and, and elegance of, of Frankenstein for me. And The Mummy, rehashing it, does have better visuals. And Karloff is, it has a very menacing look mm-hmm. as The Mummy, very memorable. But uh, I don't think the movie's great. No, it's not at all. And here's the thing. This is what happened to me, and it probably would happen with everybody who, if they haven't seen any of these mummy movies or whatever, right. or you have seen some of them. When they were, so, so in my situation, I saw some of these mummy movies when I was younger, mm-hmm. but I had never seen the original one. Okay. So in the all the sequels that follow us, right. there's a mummy in the traditional, what we, you know, wrapped in linen all over his body, walking around, right. doing stuff through the whole movies as like a zombie, right? Mm-hmm. In the original The Mummy, mm-hmm. you see him wrapped up in linen in the beginning for just a second, like yeah. as he's, a, a, and he opens his eyes. It's a really cool shot. The makeup is incredible. Beautiful. And he really is, they said that he really is la- wrapped up in 200 yards of linen in all directions they can yeah uh so it is another outfit you know it's another grueling makeup for boris yeah it's incredible i love the makeup but um you know you see him do that and then you see his hand kind of reach to the guy scares the guy and then you see all you see is the two trails of linen off his feet and then yeah when he shows up again he's unwrapped and he's just an aged Boris Karloff. Right, yeah, right. Right, it's like supposed to be several thousand years old, mm-hmm. but living in kind of a the walking dead. So he just, they have this really, really impressive kind of like wrinkling aging makeup, especially for, yeah. for that time period. It's another amazing achievement for the makeup. And it's, it's, it's the same guy. Jack Pierce is the same makeup man. Right, yeah. I mean, the visuals in the story are stellar, really good. It's just the story falls a, yeah. a little bit. The story's a little flat. Right, yeah. yeah. I remember, because that's, that's what I was saying. I... I started to watch the original Mummy uh, probably about six years ago, thinking, mm. oh, I, you know, it's been since I was a little kid since I've seen this. And then as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, wait, I've never seen this before. Right. And, oh, wait, this is not what I thought at all. Right. He's unwrapped. And, oh, wait, this is kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, my whole thing with this movie is is that uh, I believe it was in 1994 when Kenneth Branagh's uh, Frankenstein movie came out, which was from Universal. Right. And, with Robert De Niro as the monster. Right. Exactly. So that came out. And because it was from Universal, in correlation with that release, right. they released all of the other mon- Universal monster movies. So Frankenstein from 31 and Dracula. Mm-hmm. All 
all of those films, along with The Mummy. So I went out that night after I saw it, probably, or maybe that same night, and rented all of these movies to watch them again. Right. And when I got to The Mummy, I loved a lot of things about it. Like, I loved uh, Karloff's performance and the makeup that was, but yeah. it did start to fall off a bit for me, and I'm not even sure I finished it. Right. So, uh, of course, for this, I decided to go back, give it a try, and I had pretty much the same experience, except I watched the whole thing this time. And Karloff is great in it. It's just flat. Yeah, it's just, it's just flat. flat. That's all. Yeah. What mummy has usurped my eternal resting place? It is thy dead shell. I tried then to raise this body. I could raise it now. But it would be a mere thing that moved at my will without a soul. As these guys are doing these multiple Frankensteins and mummy movies, right. Lon Chaney Jr. ends up doing a lot of the mummy later, later, later. Right. But uh, what is happening, though, is Boris Karloff and, and Jack Pierce are becoming really close and really right. good friends because they're they're spending so much time together you know doing all these makeups and they <laughs> have a very strong uh, uh respect of each other too like boris karloff respects the work that he you know his talent uh right jack pierce's talent and jack pierce very much respects uh karloff's ability to bring his makeup to life in a in a, in a very memorable way. Right, yeah. It's a, an amazing partnership they worked out together. Right. And really complements each other. Yeah, for like 10 years almost, you know. Well, because this movie had a $200,000 budget, I think it did well, but not super well. It did good overseas, I think, better than it did in the United States. And the Boris Karloff one, you know, went on to have a few sequels, but it didn't get big until the reimagined ones later. Right. In 1940 with The Mummy's Hand. Mm-hmm. And then that movie, that reimagined version, ended up getting uh, b a bunch of sequels. Yes, yeah. And, and I think probably because The Mummy's Hand, apparently, I haven't seen The Mummy's Hand, but what I was reading on it was that The Mummy's Hand drew from the Boris Karloff, but also pulled from other things. Mm -hmm. and started making a bigger, better uh, story to pad it up instead of it just being kind of a rehash of a Dracula film. So that might be why it ended up being such a bigger hit. Yeah. And plus you also see the monster a lot longer, the monster yeah. that we were expecting. And, and it becomes the more conventional, he's wrapped up in linen, like right. we expect, you know. Well, and, and then also, like I, like I was saying, this is going into uh, phase two of Universal Monster thing where they're like, uh, we had something pretty good here under those uh, that Lamley family. Right. So why don't we try to uh, cash in on that? Because I, I don't think Universal was doing well under new ownership either. And so they're, right. they're trying to uh, reignite the fire from the 30s into the 40s here. Totally. And, but they're kind of selling themselves out right. a little bit. Yeah. Except for one or two. Well, I, I give Universal total props for looking at like what MGM and Warner Brothers is doing and saying, no, we're going to stick to w horror, even though those other guys snub their nose up at us for doing horror. Mm -hmm. And it was their bread and butter for a long time, and they stuck to their guns, and they did it. And look what they did with it. I mean, it's amazing that they have these horror icons that went on forever and ever, and that's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, the Boris Karloff uh, mummy, apparently, I looked this up and I thought it was really interesting that the film's poster still holds the record for the most money paid for a movie poster. And oh, wow. For $453,000. <laughs> that's pretty impressive, yeah. And it is a cool look. You know, that's that oh, same yeah. vision of him with his eyes opening up. Yep. He's in he's in the sarcophagus kind right. of standing upright and, and with his hands crossed and his head tilted. If I describe that, I'm sure a lot of people can just imagine it right, right away. Yeah. 
no. Well, I mean, with this movie, the Boris Karloff Mummy, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize that that image was in my head, but I didn't associate it with this particular movie. And until I watched it for this show, and then I was like, oh, that's where I know that from. That's where that image came from. But I do that because I love so many different kinds of film. Mm-hmm. And uh, like with uh, zombies, if I think of a zombie, then my go-to thought of is uh, Tar Man. And mm-hmm. that is exactly, the return, return of the living dead. Right, yeah. exactly. And so, and then of course, Boris Karloff is my go-to Frankenstein in my head. And so, that was an image that I had in my head, not associating it with anything until I saw this. I'm like, oh, that's the mummy. Yeah, that's Boris Karloff, and that was really neat to me to to rediscover right. that. So. Yeah, so like like I was saying with my history is is I I think again it's also Abbott and Costello stuff and right. uh, there's um, probably like Bugs Bunny shit or something like that oh, yeah, wrapped sure. up in toilet paper, <laughs> you know, and uh, um, you know those Saturday chiller theater kind of stuff that me and my sister would watch back in the old days. With you know I'm sure there was other. Oh, yeah. It was never the first one, but I was seeing some of these other ones. Oh, of course. And I, like the Mummy's Curse or whatever, and I I you know. But not a lot of them. I remember not having a whole, you know. Right. There was way more vampires and maybe werewolves than it was mummy stuff in oh, my. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, for me, definitely, like I said, how I came to the mummy movies with the release of the videos when Frankenstein came out, I because I was bored by that movie, I never sought out anything else. I mean, I saw different things like in 1990 when the Tales from the Crypt movie came out that had a little uh, cool mummy story in it mm-hmm. that I liked. and uh, But I never really sought out any of the Hammer movies because they did quite a few of the Mummy movies and stuff like that. It was in the Monster Squad and the Mummy was. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, it was it's never a character that I went and, and sought out more. And then of course by the time we get all the way up into the end of the 90s when the those other Mummy movies came out, I wasn't a big fan of those either. So it was always a character that was in the back burner for me. Right. Well, we're not big Brandon Fraser fans. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't mind the actor so much. It's just the, uh, the movies, the Mummy movies he was in. I'm not a big fan of those movies. They're a little over the top for me. You can run, but you can't hide. Derek and I, we have a, a, a quite a few <laughs> movies that we both despise together. Right. You know, like Fifth Element we've talked about. Yeah. We both hate that movie, you know, stuff like that. Right. Uh, and and the Mummy series with Brandon Fraser is one of those. Yeah. You know, I've only, I think I have seen parts. I think I slept through like the one with Jet Lee. Oh, but, um, yeah, that was the third one. I never made it to the third one. Yeah. Well, anyway. I had a good look at him when I photographed him. Never saw a mummy like that. Neither I imagine as anyone else. Looks as though he died in some sensationally unpleasant so then who's next my friend the invisible man he's the next guy we're going to talk about in the the classic universal monsters even though he's not he's not a right he's not a scary monster monster i mean he's a bad guy he's just yeah he's just a bad person right yeah i mean he's not a monster really he's just made some bad choices yeah you know everyone has a good streak in him somewhere. well I, he could be because he's lost his mind. The, I think right. the drugs has made him go insane. Oh, so he's the gone dr- monstrous. Yeah, so therefore, you know, in that kind of um, sociopathic right. uh, Norman Bates kind of monster. Mm, I'm not buying it, Tim. 
<laughs> well, whatever. That movie comes out on Halloween of 1933. Remember that one? Oh, that was a good Halloween. Man, oh man, I remember it as if it were 89 years ago. <laughs> I was negative 59 years old. <laughs> Something like that. You, you weren't even itching your daddy's pants. <laughs> yeah, you weren't even born yet. Oh, yeah? That's great. It appears that a mysterious disease has broken out, infecting a large number of the inhabitants. It takes the form of a delusion that an invisible man is living among them. Several people have been seriously injured, probably through fighting among themselves and their belief that their opponent is an invisible man. Anywho. Yeah, so that one is uh, Claude Rains mm-hmm. in his Hollywood film debut. Or is he? <laughs> yeah. They were like, hey, you want to be in a movie? He's like, yes. Yeah, they're like, okay, we'll never see you. Sorry. You're never going to see you. Yeah, I know, right? So I watched this a couple weeks ago. I, I had seen it before, and I remember kind of having a similar vibe, for me anyway. I had a similar um feeling about it that I did with the um, with the mummy where I'm the first okay. mummy I'm like eh it's okay a little flat right I th- uh, you know Claude Rains yeah he's the English accent he was an English actor theater actor probably and and you can tell he has an accent and he's new to to mm-hmm. the Hollywood scene and you cannot see him the whole goddamn movie. And I was thinking when I was watching this, I'm like, is it really him? How do we know? <laughs> right. How do you know it's him? He doesn't, you, you don't see his face until the last 10 seconds right. of the movie. Yeah, well, I mean, it is weird that they would, even if it's a new actor, but they would bring in an actor yeah. and say, oh, well, we're not going to see your face till the last little bit of the movie. The rest of the movie are going to be wrapped in bandages and wearing goofy goggles and stuff. Um, the concept's cool. The, the, the visual effects for 1933 oh, are, are amazing for 1933. Yeah, they're really, really yeah. good. Even the whole lighting the cigarette. Yeah. And the match is still in his hand while he's talking. Yeah. And the you know, puff of the smoke, tosses the cigarette all of that's great that's really really good yeah and it's early what we know as blue screen but back then it was black screen and right uh, yeah if it is in fact mr claude rains in there he was wearing a full uh, black velvet bodysuit to be able to match mm. the background and then they recorded they filmed him doing the thing with a black background mm-hmm. so that you couldn't see uh him except for the stuff he's wearing right and then uh, they did a you know a double exposure with the actual footage of the you know uh, the like if he's in a hotel room or whatever. Right. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. I wonder how hot that was wearing a black velvet suit. Yeah. Under those studio lights back then. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, and rap to boot. Yeah. That's what happened. There was another actor, and then he died of heat exhaustion. <laughs> yeah. So old Claude had to come in and cover up the mess. It was Fatty Arbuckle. <laughs> I don't think so. He was trying to make his big comeback. Oh man. And he had a heart attack. So it has a pretty decent budget. Mm-hmm. More, it's one hundred and thirty thousand dollars more than Frankenstein. Well, yeah, that's crazy, right? Well, yeah, I, yeah, oh, yeah. That's only like two years later, right? Or one year later, right? Yeah, something like that. But it was a huge hit. Yeah, even though you can't really find numbers, uh, everywhere I found it just said huge hit. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to take our word for it. It won't give us any numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Suspicious. <laughs> I think all of those profits were invisible. <laughs> All right, go now. If you raise a finger against me, you're a dead man. I'm strong, and I'll strangle you. 
It's one of those movies that, as we get into the history with the character and the film in uh-huh. our particular history. You go, you go ahead. My history with it? Yeah. I, again, this is probably like a Saturday thing back in, uh, you know, maybe early 80s or late 70s. And um, being whatever with it, thinking it was cool, blah, blah, blah. You know, because I'm, I'm, everything is fresh to me, you know. So probably being wowed by it and all that. But then watching it again, probably in the mid-2000s at some point and thinking, I don't know if I like this. Mm, okay. It's a little flat. And then I watched it again. For this show, I watched it uh, a couple of weeks ago, like I said a few minutes ago, and uh, I I maintain that. I kind of slept through the middle of it. It it, it didn't. I felt like what it felt like to me was kind of like Jurassic World in a way where it's it's relying very heavily on the gimmick of the show, you know, of the, you know, and then not really there's not a whole lot of story going on. It's just one parlor trick after the next. Right. Uh, yeah, my history with it is uh, <laughs> it's something that I mentioned just a minute ago to you off mic, but uh, in the early 80s, there was a film called The Man Who Wasn't There with Steve Guttenberg. Right, right. Because there never was a man like the man who wasn't there, disappearing soon at a theater near you. That was on some cable channel we had, and that came on, and I was amazed at the invisibleness of right. the whole movie and the gimmick behind it and all of that stuff. So then I went on this bender of trying to find all this stuff with it. I bought the book of Invisible Man and mm-hmm. all of that. From H.G. Wells, you mean? From H.G. Wells, which this is based on. Never read the book. You just bought it. I was young, even though I bought it. I bought, yeah. I'm going to read this, and I never got around to reading it until years later. I've done that a thousand times. But yeah, I got into that, and then I, I ended up renting this one years later. Years later, I found this one. Yeah. And I think I had the same experience that you had, where I kind of got bored with it and turned it off. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't rewatched it until for this episode that we're doing right now. And I really, I really liked it. I, I got into the rhythm of it. I, you know, you open on that thing where he's in some weird town. Cold, yeah, you know, snowy, yeah. Yeah, cold, snowy town. It's in the tavern. It's an inn and has a room and all these people. And the stranger walks in. That hits a vibe with me that I just immediately love yeah and so then this is mysterious guy who knows what he's doing up there and everything and yeah some of the acting is a little over the top and stuff like that but i got into it i actually really dug the visual style of it not just the visual effects but like the visual style of it i liked his voice claude rain's voice is Mm -hmm. very kind of there's a presence to it that's Mm -hmm. really cool i want a room and a fire we ain't got none ready not at this time of year we don't usually have folks stopping, except in the summer. You can get one ready. Can't hear me say, Millie? Uh, and yeah, I ended up liking it. Well, that uh, that opening scene you're talking about where he comes into the bar and everybody's kind of record scratch and stares at him like he's a weirdo right. was used in one of our favorite movies, uh, American Werewolf in London, mm-hmm. when the guys walk into the slaughtered lamb, you know, mm-hmm. and the darts go, you know, you made me miss. I never miss, you know, right. all that stuff. You know, it's very much. So, yeah, I, I understood that. I Yeah. I think I was feeling the same thing as you. It's just after a while, I'm like, okay, they're just doing one more invisible right, sight right. gag after the next, after a while. And I'm like, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it is, 
it does get to the point where instead of having the money to be able to do a really impressive invisible shot, it's just guys holding their neck as if someone's strangling them that you can't see. Going, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's easy, really, if you're clever. A few chemicals mixed together, that's all. And flesh and blood and bone just fade away. A little of this injected under the skin of the arm every day for a month. An invisible man can rule the world. So as we said uh, near the beginning when we started talking about The Invisible Man, as the movie came out, it did well enough to start having sequels. Mm-hmm. And that was Invisible Man Returns in 1940, Invisible Woman in 1940, same mm-hmm. year, because they're really starting to get, and then the Invisible Agent in 1942. Yeah, well, you know, this, and this goes back to what we were talking about with some of the Mummy movies and all that stuff that mm-hmm. were all in this same time period. This is when the corporation had taken over Universal, right. and they're trying to reignite the fire. You got you to gotta also figure, too. Mm-hmm. That some of these movies are during wartime, and they probably don't have a lot of people around, and... Uh, we got to just start, re- you know, writers that went off to war or something. We just got to regurgitate some of the shit and get through this wartime. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it shows. Because some of these movies are through the mid-40s here. Well, I mean, you also have to think, you know, Universal's looking in its back catalog and saying, what do we have that we can exploit? Yeah. You know, what can we remake? Yeah. And so, uh, and there was one other sequel that I forgot to mention in mm-hmm. 1944. There was one called The Revenge of the Invisible Man. So there you go. So, you know, there's not much more to say about that one. I mean, I don't hold it near it. I remember, you know, you mentioned off off transmission here that uh, Chevy Chase had that movie, um, mm-hmm. Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yeah, I loved that movie when it came out. I remember seeing it mainly because I heard that the trailer for Batman Returns was at the beginning. Yeah. And so I went to see it, and for sure the Batman trailer was on there. But also then sitting through that movie and watching it and knowing already being a fan of John Carpenter, and that was one of the films he directed, even though apparently he had a really hard time uh, directing Chevy Chase, go figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... I liked the movie because it took the idea and built on it, the whole invisible thing. So like in this uh, version of The Invisible Man we just talked about from Universal, when he is taking the bandages off that's wrapped around his head, when you see his eye holes, you can see all the way through the back of his head and to the wall, even though there should be bandages there. And in the Chevy Chase movie, they, they did all this stuff so you did see that stuff. It was all correct. When he smokes a cigarette and there's nothing else there, yeah. you can see the smoke go into his lungs. Or when he's eating, yeah. you can see it digesting and stuff like that. I, I dug all of that stuff. So, I mean, if anything, it's worth checking out just to see how well it's directed by John Carpenter, which is one of my favorite directors. I know now. It came to me suddenly. The drugs I took seemed to light up my brain. Suddenly I realized the power I held, the power to rule, to make the world grovel at my feet. So the next one is their first new monster under new ownership. Right. And that's The Wolfman, starring Lon Chaney Jr. this time. Yeah. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Bela became a wolf, and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet, or a silver knife, or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. There was a movie called werewolf of london in 1935 and it wasn't a great hit and apparently the if you've seen footage of it 
the actor who plays the werewolf in that was a little too vain to be able to go through a lot of the covering his face stuff and so when you do see that makeup there's a reason why it's not very wolfy it's because the guy's like i want people to be able to see my face kind of very sylvester stallone and judge dread kind of thing he's like i'm not claude rains here you're not going to cover my face up for this whole movie (laughs) right so yeah that movie didn't uh do so well and um this again is a another masterpiece of universal uh uh, monster makeup with uh jack pierce again the guy who did the mummy and uh frankenstein right yeah so they they do the the wolfman changing in uh, time-lapse photography and it's pretty (laughs) cool yeah you know when you're a kid it's like oh wow he's turning right in front of my eyes but you you know you watch it as an adult and you're like okay there's the cut for that one (laughs) and then there's the cut for that one right all right, this is He's the part. He's not quite sitting the same way. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, his, his toe, his little toe is off to the left. <laughs> yeah, because the first change is the first change in the Wolfman. Is, you just see his legs. He sits down in a chair, and his legs change. Right. Yeah, and also, you know, when you're watching it and you see his face change, and they do the time lapse on his face, mm-hmm. it's like, why isn't he moving? Yeah, isn't that uncomfortable? Or can't he feel those hairs? Kind of. But it's one of those things too that once you see it and you put yourself in the time that it came out, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And still, when you watch that movie today, you can really appreciate how great the makeup is on, on him. It is, yeah. It's really great. And performance, I yeah. think. You know. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Some people, I, I know there were some people who had a hard time buying Lon Chaney Jr. as a lord because the, right. the, the, the it was a different actor, I think, and then they got Lon Chaney Jr. and or something to that effect where once he got put in as a lord, it didn't quite make sense. You were like, wait, yeah, what? Yeah, who's this lord from Shaboy? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a very rare piece. It shows the wolf in the pentagram, the sign of the werewolf. Werewolf? What's that? Well, that's a human being who at certain times of the year changes into a wolf. You mean runs around on all fours and bites and snaps and bays at the moon? Oh, even worse than that sometimes. That guy doesn't, it doesn't have that um, arist- aristocratic kind of right. thing going on him. He's a very regular Joe kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's vanilla all the way. <laughs> but, you know, what's cool at that movie is they, they do start it off with the little title, the little story card in the beginning, and they're basically telling you what lycanthropy is and right. how... Uh, there's kind of two definitions whether it's you are actually someone who is cursed and turning into a werewolf or you are somebody with mental illness issues and you think you're turning into a werewolf right? right so they pose the beginning of that movie and then if you watch the movie close enough you'll realize no one ever sees him change right. no one ever really sees the werewolf other than his victims who get killed so there's no one to tell whether this whole thing is from the perspective of Talbot's uh, delusion that he thinks he's a werewolf you know he believes in this curse so much that he thinks he's a werewolf which is a real thing oh yeah there you know that this there are cases of this happening going all the way back several hundred years where many a movie yeah where (laughs) people had a, a mental illness where they thought they turned into wolves. Right, yeah, and you actually have a scenario where this happened in history, so why don't you enlighten us, Tim? Yeah, and, and there's a famous uh, a story in France, I believe it was, and uh, um, where there's a the EGOT fungus would grow on their bread or something, or their cheese, I can't remember. It was a certain type of fungus called EGOT, and it would cause hallucinations, and there was this whole kind of like uh, mass hysteria 
because mm-hmm. of an outbreak of this stuff in the food supply. Right. Yeah. And uh, there was this whole um, kind of witch hunt of werewolfism going on in this place in France. This is a real thing. This really happened. You can look this That's up. Crazy. And there also the fungus. What was interesting about it is the fungus had an altitude cut off. So like anybody who lived uh, a little bit higher uh, above the town, out up in the hills were not suffering from it and they could come into the whole situation and be like what what's wrong with you people what are you doing <laughs> nobody here is turning into a werewolf you know <laughs> except in a very pompous french accent right what are you doing you stupid <laughs> you're so stupid there's no werewolf that's a terrible french accent doesn't matter if the accent was wrong as long as the attitude was right tim <laughs> <laughs> but anyway i think that's that was a really cool setup because uh if you watch the movie kind of paying attention to that that little uh, uh detail, s- yeah. detail card you're like oh yeah look at how they did that yeah and it also kind of set into the trend of the wolfman standing up on hind legs you know like right. we all kind of expect right because right. in in the werewolves of lore kind of like from the vampires of lore where the vampires of lore were just basically zombies that walked around searching for blood they didn't have personalities or anything in the mm-hmm. lore of the vampire in the lore of the werewolf kind of like in twilight they would just the idea was is that a man would turn directly into a wolf a wolf, right? Not not a wolf-man hybrid or anything right. like that. Yeah, there's there's more examples of that through cinema history. I mean, if you go all the way up even to I think it's '94's Wolf with Jack Nicholson, in that even as the moon grows more full, he becomes more and more wolf. Yeah. A wolf bit me. I don't think so, Will. You weren't there, Will. Yeah, but this one's definitely setting up a new kind of uh, lure in the new kind of monster that they're introducing here in 1941 when this movie comes out. So the Wolfman, they, they're taking bits and pieces from all kinds of different lure and putting it into this and building their own new monster Right. and putting it out there. I mean, I don't think necessarily the intention was we're going to build a universe and Dracula's out there, <laughs> all of that stuff, and, and it'll meet Frankenstein. And yeah. I don't think they're going into it with that mindset. But what they do is they create this monster that does feel a part of the whole monster universe universe quote yeah. that they have created the visually it feels like a part of that because of the very dutch angles that they're doing and the visual effects that they use and the makeup effects and all of the uh, german expressionism that they're using the gypsies and all of this stuff is culminating into a uh, new character that they're putting out there and will become that thing where this is the wolfman and that's what people will think of from there on out yeah right Yeah, well, even as, you know, special effects gets better and better, they Mm -hmm. tend to do more of a dog-type head on top of a a humanoid body kind of thing, right? Until outside of our favorite American Werewolf in London, where it's it's more, you know, like if you look at the howling, we've talked about this before, but if you look at the howling, it's kind of like maybe a 70% man, 30% wolf, and and most of that 30% is in the head. Right, and then that's 20% of bunny ears for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 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 But when you go to American Werewolf in London, it's basically Mm. like 50% man, 50% wolf, you know, this hybrid. And and therefore, the hip structure is so violently changed, he cannot stand upright and he falls onto his forearms. Yeah, which is a great way to push this character forward. Yeah, correct. 
But sticking with the 1941 Wolfman that we're talking about for this show, how did you first see this version? I would imagine that I I came across this first with uh, Abbott and Costello. And, uh, oh, okay. Then Abbott and Costello meets the werewolf or meets whatever it is, meets Dracula. Uh, right. um, yeah, Lon Chaney Jr. is reprising the role as, and so is mm. Bella Lagosi, right? Isn't oh, I don't Dracula? know. It's just, it's not Karloff. It's uh, some other, di- I forget the guy's yeah, name. Yeah, I, I don't know about uh, Lagosi returning as Dracula, but uh, I know for sure Karloff did not return as the monster in this, so. Back. 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 Yes. Master. He thinks I'm Dracula. I'm almost positive that's where I first came across that, oh, you know. Okay. And well, um, the Wolfman. You mean. I think seeing the Wolfman movie probably more in the early '80s because of, you know, like I, I had an upset. Even though I wasn't allowed to watch it, I had that obsession with American Werewolf in London. Right. Right. Yeah. And and the making of it, and the Howling was out at the same time, and Wolfen was out, and all these. You know, it was it, right. this one kind of had a deep-seated thing for me. Right, I remember you saying that. I became kind of mildly obsessed with the idea of the werewolf, as and and for the longest time, and probably still to, to this day, it's one of my favorite. Oh yeah, monsters of any kind. Of you course. know what I mean? There's, you know. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I even I know my sister for like maybe eight or nine year old Halloween, she did me up as a werewolf. She got, she like glued, a, glued a bunch of cotton balls to my face and, uh, right. painted them brown and all that stuff. And I had the, the, up, you know, the werewolf fangs where the bottom had an underbite, you know? Right. That was a pretty freaking cool, uh, Halloween costume. Oh yeah. I'm sure as a kid, even you're like, that's right. I'm the shit. Yeah. Oh, I felt <laughs> cool as shit. Everybody complimented me too. on oh. the houses getting out candy. Of course. Yeah. I'm sure you were the talk of the town until that kid dressed as Michael Knight came up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, the werewolf, not, I don't think, as prominent through history as Frankenstein and Dracula, which has stayed in the popular media forever, mm-hmm. it seems like, never has gone away. The werewolf has these areas where he'll pop up and then go away and pop up and go away. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if you take just staying in the, like the 50s, 60s era, you got that uh, Michael Landon, I was a teenage werewolf thing. Oh, yeah, with Michael Landon. Michael Landon. <laughs> he looks so stupid. <laughs> like, his teeth are like. Right. All over the place. And then you get into the early 80s and you got Michael J. Fox and Jason Bateman playing Teen Wolf. And <laughs> <laughs> right, right. An explanation is probably long overdue. An explanation? Jesus Christ, Dad, an explanation? Look at me. Look at you. You know, they Universal remade the movie about ten years ago, and oh. uh, I don't think it did well. But I do credit the, the the remake of The Wolfman. It has some merit to it right. with Benicio del Toro as yeah. as uh, Larry Talbot this time. Right? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. The beast is the beast. Let it run free. I think the first maybe half to two-thirds of the movie is pretty rad. Oh, yeah. 
And then the last act is terrible. Yeah, I mean, once you get to the whole thing with the father and that thing. Yeah. I mean, spoiler alert. They have to fight each other, of course. Right, right. Because the father is another wolf and all of that stuff. So it it gets a little gimmicky there, but I'm still with it, and I like it through that. I think the standout moment in the movie is the transformation in that big uh, auditorium that they're in when they lock them down. Yeah, the the, the medical theater. Yes, that. Oh, my God, that's great. Yeah. It's fantastic work there. Right. And I love the fact that they have the hind legs that pop out. So If you look at the... um the the Lon Chaney Jr. one, he is on like a weird stilt thing where they give him the, uh, he's like walking on his tippy toes like a dog would. Okay. If you ever pay attention to. I don't think I pay to, attention, yeah. It, I yeah, it's, attention. it's, yeah. I, it was one of those things, I, the, the, after seeing it like the seventh time or whatever, I'm like, oh, look at that. He does yeah. have what, you know, you know, what they call a fleet-footed animal where their ankle never touches the ground and right. what it appears to be a backwards knee, but it's not. But they do do something like that. And they do it again with Benicio Del Toro yeah. where he was running. It's very prominent. Yeah. But I'm actually really fond of the Benicio Del Toro uh, Wolfman. I really like the movie and I love that they brought in Rick Baker and gets another shot at the Wolfman. What's great about that movie is is they don't shy away on the, gore. the violence. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, and the gore. And, and right. that's what I love about that particular monster is it's is, is an American werewolf is that particular monster's ferocity you know yeah. whereas like Frankenstein is kind of a lumbering and mm-hmm. you know he kills the little girl kind of by accident in some ways right. you know and, and, <laughs> you know he, you can piss him off but he's just kind of a big lumbering oaf right right there is a specific kind of like um beastly anger that we've talked about in the past that I find and kind of fascinating and cool yeah you know oh yeah and 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 in that Benicio del Toro remake, like right. when the, his it's his dad and he gets attacked and he's in that gypsy caravan oh, thing and man. those there's like claws are going through people's yes. faces and oh my god that's so badass. Yeah. I also just like that they made it a true remake of the original. It's set in the same time period. It's got those traveling little gypsies, yeah. and the castle and the manor and all of that stuff. It just mm-hmm. it feels correct to me. It feels like it's a part of that world again. Except they're coming at it with this ferociousness with the character and they should because that is the character. I think a lot of people didn't know what to make of it when it first came out and uh, so it may be pushed a little people away maybe because it was a period piece. that and I, there's three different endings to that movie because they didn't know how to end it right. and then they just chose the one ending right well, so yeah. that that tells you right there that yeah oh boy we don't know what we're doing here right there probably ended up being too many cooks in the kitchen <laughs> you know, as far as writers but in the you know the original Lon Chaney one it's got it's got a lot of cool atmosphere when he's like out in the uh, woods and there's mm-hmm. a lot of steam and uh, you know or I should say mist you know like fog and uh, even it, in the little gypsy town you know Bella Lugosi shows up for a little cameo there yeah and right but all the way all of that feels aesthetically it's just beautiful the way right. they shoot the 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 night exteriors with the mm-hmm. the certain lights coming in at certain angles and hitting the characters just right in there oh that's beautiful stuff. Yeah. This is one of those ones that uh, it's up there for me. I love Frankenstein the most out of all of these universal mm-hmm. ones, but Wolfman's up there as far as aesthetic look and mm-hmm. how it feels a part of that whole. Like I said, it's not the plan, but it feels a part of the universe of how they make these movies feel. It feels very much cohesive with, with that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I, I, as much as I love the whole werewolf mythos, and I think we've talked about this before, unfortunately for me... American Werewolf in London is, as much as I love werewolves, it's the only one I like. Yeah, it's a cornerstone. I, can't, sure. I have not found another before or after werewolf movie that I feel is 
top-notch and kick-ass all the way through. Yeah, I know, for sure. I love that movie. That's my favorite werewolf movie as well. But we we owe something to the Wolfman from the 40s from Universal mm-hmm. just because if without that, we probably wouldn't have American Werewolf. So. Yeah, right. So that's why, I mean, I think as a kid, I, I enjoyed the Wolfman more. But as, a, as an adult, I'm just kind of like, yeah, I, I like the novelty of it and the nostalgia of it. Yeah. But I don't love I don't love it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The only one of these that I want to... There's only two that I want to rewatch, and that's Frankenstein right. and the one coming up soon. Ooh, that's a tease. So having said that, let's get into the creature from the Black Lagoon. What that is, Dr. Mayer? I don't know, Luis. I have never seen anything like this before. Is it important? Yes, I think it is. Very important. So this one makes my top three. Yeah. Top three of my favorite monsters, Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Now, I wouldn't go as far as to say that Creature from the Black Lagoon, the movie, is shot as well. doesn't have the same uh, a magnificent atmosphere. There's a couple of cool trick things they do. Right. Yeah, but not. it's not... It doesn't go all the way through like Frankenstein does. Right. The, right. the filming of it is not as nostalgic to me as w- the story of it and the lure of it. I love that. Yeah. To me, I think it's just a badass-looking yes. creature. Yes. Yeah. Badass-looking creature, but also the idea of you don't know what's underneath you. Right. It's, it came out in February of 1954, and it, and obviously time's gone on from the 30s, so the budget's bigger, $1.3 million. So it's pretty right. Pretty big, and it was filmed with 3D cameras, and was going to come out as 3D. Uh, but it came out when the 3D thing was dying out—the first <laughs> right. wave of 3D. Right. Yeah, and what we, what you were saying about the not knowing what's underneath and all that. There's that famous scene where the woman is swimming, and then you're mm-hmm. kind of the the camera's panned way back, and he's mirroring the the, the creature is mirroring her swimming, but facing up at her, and it's like, yeah, you could just. I've always felt that about lakes. It creeps me the fuck out, you know? Yep, no, me too. Yeah, there's that weird thing that movies, if done right, like in Jaws. Yeah. Who knows what's down? You know something's watching, but you don't quite know what it is. And this is that same way. You don't know where it's going to pop up. You know, right. is, is it over to the left, the right, underneath you? You know, where where is it going to go? And the fact that it also can walk around. Yeah, out of the land and, and right. yeah, because it's 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 basically kind of like a missing link humanoid of fish creature, you know. Right. It has gills and all that stuff, and it can only be out of the water for so long. But it, it definitely looks like uh, a man mixed with a fish. Mm-hmm. So, here's what's interesting about this, right? Um, so Jack Pierce obviously has to age out. You know, we're yeah. talking about all his movie makeups, and he did everything up until this point because what happened was is he never had a contract with uh universal he just worked there year to year and uh what happened was is he was they felt like he was getting a little slow in his old age and he you know because of his techniques they felt like some younger guys could do it faster right cheaper (laughs) and cheaper too yeah but enter enter the westmores and uh the westmore is kind of like this complicated history of uh, movie effects people that goes way back to the beginning of movies too right right, right. so there's like the, the the patriarch of the family I can't remember his name he's some guy from England and he's a hairdresser and he ends up doing a lot of wig making and stuff like that during the silent film era mm-hmm. and he has 
six sons and all of his sons become movie makeup guys and and they have their own companies and stuff like that that's crazy yeah all six of them and uh one of them is bud westmore and bud westmore ends up getting hired to continue on jack pierce's work while because and because jack pierce has no contract universal in the late 40s just says we're, we're kind of done with you bro See you're it. aging out yeah and they replace him with bud westmore who becomes the head of universal movie makeup and this happens right around the time of those abbott and costello uh, meets frankenstein and all that stuff. So, I mean, and when you watch those movies you can see a definite decline in the quality of the makeup because oh, yeah. Jack Pierce isn't doing them anymore. For sure. So we go on, you know, another, what is it, almost 10 years here, and he's still the head, and uh, there's this woman. He hires one of the first woman makeup artists, and her name is um, Millicent Patrick, and she's actually a bit of a genius, and uh, but because she's a woman... She's kind of left under the radar, right? Of course. She's the one who actually designed the creature from the Creature of the Black Lagoon. Oh, my God. Yeah, and she did uh, the weird eyeball monster from It Came From Outer Space. Uh, That's so awesome. And she did, um, I think it's Metaluna Mutants from This Island Earth, which are amazing-looking creatures from the 50s. These kind of brain, yeah, these blue and red brain things with big goggles she designed those things she's just got a really super vivid complicated aesthetic yeah oh man and, and her work right and and obviously like we said the, the the creature from the creature of the back lagoon is one of the coolest looking things right it's this kind of fish man thing i would go as far as to say it's one of the most iconic yeah looking creatures out of all the monsters that we we're talking about yeah I mean, you know you know frankenstein has his look and everything like that but i mean as far as monsters he's still very human underneath all of it monstrous right? things this yeah. is definitely up there please what is it you found i don't know what you call it, it sounds incredible but it appeared to be human i tell you if, if it's what i think i saw it's the greatest find yet. Nothing compares to it. So um, this is what happens with Millicent, though, is uh, when the creature from the Black Lagoon is coming out, she's uh, sent out on a tour to do promotion for the movie. And uh, she's basically listed as the beauty who created the beast, right? And her job is to kind of discuss the monster as she's on this press tour for the release of this movie. Well, Bud Westmore gets wind of that and he gets pissed because this woman's getting credit for this thing that she actually deserves credit for, and he doesn't <laughs> like it. So they ended up changing the name of the uh, tour to The Beauty Who Lives With The Beast. Because Millicent is actually a very attractive woman. Right. And uh, that's with the whole Beauty and the Beast thing, right? And then that's, that's, uh, they're trying to avoid giving her the credit for right. the Gill Man. And when the tour is over... And she gets back to uh, to uh, L.A. She's informed that she doesn't work for Universal Studios anymore because uh, Bud is pissed off that she was getting all the attention. And, and so he kind of buries her and her her name, and he literally takes the credit for designing the monster for the next several decades because I don't think it's until about 10, 15 years ago a book was written about Millicent uh, Patrick and talking and and kind of exposing her for the talent that she really was and how a woman designed all these cool uh, creatures in the 1950s and was completely 
kind of blacklisted in a way. I mean, just think of what we potentially missed out on with her being buried like that because if she would have went on to do other things, she might have made something even... I think she did, but in low-budget stuff with no... That's what I mean. Beef beef to it, you know what I mean? And Yeah, so... Yeah, it's a shame. It's typical of that time period. And so that, you know... Jesus Christ. If anybody remembers the reality competition show uh, called Face Off, where it was about movie makeup, and it was like it was kind of like Project Runway, but for movie makeup, right. monster makeup, and uh, the woman who hosted the show was Mackenzie Westmore. She was part of that family, and her father would come through during the uh, makeup sessions and give advice on what to do. Wow. Bud Westmore was one of his uncles. He's, he, you know, he was the son of the oldest of the six. Okay. Who knows, maybe they were all dicks. I don't really know, Every, but Bud is the one that has the reputation for being an asshole. But um, he seemed nice enough on a uh, face-off. That, right, you know, of course. His, his nephew the camera did. in front of him. I bet <laughs> yeah. Jerkwad. Uh, <laughs> as far as history with the creature from the Black Lagoon. Mine's pretty cool. So back in, uh, I'm going to say it was like right around 82. There were two movies that were uh, going to be broadcast on television in 3D. Oh, okay. And it was advertised way ahead of time. And part of the ad campaign was go to your local 7-Eleven and purchase your 3D glasses and then tune in to channel whatever at this time and night, right? Right. The two movies were The Creature from the Black Lagoon and uh, another m- weird movie called The Mask and it wasn't with Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> it was like this weird... What's weird is The Mask with Jim Carrey and The Mask with the 3D movie from the 50s, they're not that different. Right. It's kind of the same story. Oh, really? Yeah. That a guy who puts the mask on and gets possessed by it. That's funny. Okay. Uh, so that was when the first time I saw the Creature from the Black Lagoon. It was one of those, like, our whole family got together and watched it all, you know, in the family room uh, with the 3D glasses on. And that was my very first 3D experience. Were you blown away by the 3D? Yeah, it was cool yeah. as shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, because I'm like, I think I'm, if I'm, it's 82. I'm like nine years old. Right. So. Uh, and it's weird, too, because black and white movies actually yeah. look really great in 3D. Yeah. That's right. Really pops. Yeah, and, you know, then probably seeing it sometime in my 20s again. And then when me and my wife were first dating, uh, Alamo Drafthouse in Denver did a did a screening of Creature from the Black Lagoon, and that we went and saw it then. Probably That was, like, you know, about five years ago. And right. uh, to see it in a the theater was really fun. Oh, yeah. It was it, That movie holds up. And I'm, I'm yeah, just saying it it's, it's really it's entertaining and fun to watch. Yep, and there's, there's it, it does have those moments of tense, like you know, even though I'm not saying you're like scared, scared for what's yeah. gonna happen to to the people, you feel like the anxiety the movie's building. You feel on. the intent, yeah, you know, to scare the audience in 1954. Yeah, no, for sure. What was your experience with it? So my first experience with this was there was a movie <laughs> back in the 80s called. Oh, yeah. And it was basically the Monster Squad in that movie had, like, a Dracula, a Frankenstein character, and mm-hmm. a creature from the Black Lagoon. They didn't call creature from the Black Lagoon. It was some called something else. But I thought, wow, that's a cool character. It had a Wolfman thing, too, and everything. But uh, that was another one where 
I rented it from this mom and pop video store, and then I went back saying, "Oh, you know," and I was all up on uh, wanting to rent uh, like the Frankenstein, I'm pretty sure, and something else. The guy behind the counter was just like, "Well, you know, the other the creature in that bog in the movie is based on this movie," and then he went over and grabbed it and gave it that to me, and he gave me that and the sequel. Mm-hmm. And so I saw both of those at the same time. Oh wow! As a, yeah, and as a kid, I was just like, "Wow!" You know? Yeah, I really, really thought it was cool. And I remember even being a little scared of it a bit mm-hmm. as a kid. You know, in that scene that you just described, where you see it, it floating. You know, it's just, right. it's just like, ugh. Yeah. No, I know. I think I probably did too, because it is kind of spooky. And uh, yeah. it wasn't the sequel. It was a little more on the beach. Yeah. Yeah, he's in an, uh, like an aquarium. Yeah, kind of, yeah. That's yeah. I have seen that one too, I, but uh, not until probably mid '80s or something like that. There's a, there's a young hunk that might go on to do good things called uh, Clint Eastwood, I believe. Oh yeah, who's that yeah. guy? I'm gonna keep my eye on that guy. He might he might do something. One day. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Man's got to know his limitations. How is this the one monster movie out of the Universal monster movies? Like, you got Frankenstein, Invisible mm-hmm. Man, and all of these movies, Dracula. How is this the one, even though it's so cool, that's never been able to get a remake off the ground? Well, they kind of did in Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, and it won an Oscar in a way. Yeah. I mean, but, I mean, it's not... That was kind of like a play on, you know, how he, he, the creature, kind of like in a King Kong kind of way, falls in love with the woman on the boat right. in the Amazon, right? And For sure. You can definitely see inspirations for it in that movie. Guillermo del Toro's idea is what if the, the, the woman loved the creature back? Right. Which is kind of interesting. You know, it's, it's cool because this is the movie that's, it's a monster movie. In the sci-fi era, you know, the aliens yep. and, and and all that. But it's a successful monster movie in the sci-fi flying saucer era. And um, I think that says a lot about it, too. Yeah. And, and just the kind of original idea of it. Because mm-hmm. there, there was a bunch of very bad copycats within the oh. 50s right there. Within the next few years, there's a lot sure. of terrible, terrible sea, mo- you know, like fish monster man movies oh, that yeah. come out right around that same time. Yeah, trying to uh, chase down the surfers on the beach while they... Yeah. So yeah, like we said, this had sequels, Revenge of the Creature in 1955, and then The Creature Walks Among Us in uh, 1956, mm-hmm. which I never knew about until just the other night. Yeah, and you watched it. I didn't it. know that there was a third one. So yeah, I watched it, and it's not great. It's definitely right. not great, and you can tell that it's universal saying, eh... Here's a few extra bucks, but you're not <laughs> yeah. gonna get the budget that we put in the first one. Right. And so, yeah, it feels like that. The the costume doesn't feel as good, and right. you know, and it's out of the water most of the time. And which it, doesn't make it, sense. Yeah. 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 So it, they're kind of ruining the whole thing. But this was like for me the end of the universal reign of pretty much horror monsters yeah. and stuff like that because what happens is is we start to get crossovers a little before this yeah like i know a lot of people think oh it's going to be a cool new beginning kind of thing that's how they try to, to sell it mm-hmm. but to me in every instance that you can look back and see crossover movies it always feels like the last nail in the coffin <laughs> right right for a certain franchise alien versus predator and freddy right. versus jason and all right. of those movies you start bringing all of those in and it just seems like these movies can't do 
these monsters can't do well enough on their own, so we have to bring in you know, the other hitters. So then so you get Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. The Wolfman's played by Long Cheney Jr. Right. Bella Lugosi comes in to play. Play the monster for the, the first monster. time. Yeah, he and finally gets to play it, and it looks terrible. It looks terrible, and also he's so old at the time, he he can't hardly get around in the costume. Yeah. And everything you read said that when they first screened the movie, everyone laughed when he started talking as a monster because he had that thick you know, Hungarian monster, or Hungarian right. accent. And so they had to cut all the lines. So right. anything that made sense in the movie automatically didn't make sense because you didn't have the dialogue to go right. Right. And everything. Yeah. So then, yeah, that was in 1943. And then in House of Frankenstein, 1944, that comes out. And then House of Dracula in 1945. So yeah. those are the 43, 44, 45. And then that's it. They're spent. Right. And is, isn't John Carradine playing Dracula in those too? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like, what? What? Yeah. Well, he doesn't look anything like Bella Lugosi. <laughs> yeah. It's just. But the only constant, you know, I think Bella's popping up here and there, but the constant is Lon Chaney Jr. Because he's Lon doing Chaney. all of these, you know, Wolfman continuations. He's dressing up as the monster sometimes and other, yep. like, and, and, and he's also doing a slew of these mummy movies and yep. ends up dying uh, of alcoholism pretty shortly, like before the end of the 40s is over, I think. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a sad life. I think he kind of lost it kind of yeah. jan- he kind of jan michael vincent did it <laughs> but <laughs> but ended up dying earlier and not losing a leg first but uh that was the uh nail in the coffin yeah for sure like Pretty you said the, the, the crossover stuff and and the fact that they're parodying all this shit with uh abbott and right. costello and all that it was kind of well, like that's wh- the next thing the final the final blow to these monsters is it's like okay well we can't even do horror movies with these monsters anymore so let's give them to these comedians abbott and costello and they can act yeah ridiculous around it right so you have abbott and costello meet frankenstein in 1948 mm-hmm. abbott and costello meet the invisible man in 1951 and then abbott and costello meet the mummy in 1955 and then that's right pretty much it it's done since this was the beginning of talkies and and uh, in 1930 early 1930s when a lot of these you know outside of the wolfman and the creature right they laid the foundation for horror movies for yeah. decades and yep. like you said you know they still stand the test of time today you know and then you know they did try to do that uh universal monsters universe, universe. <laughs> like this cinematic universe thing that really fell on its face here's the thing is with universal's been trying to rehash these characters in some form or another with some kind of universe because i think that you know a bold attempt that it was was when they did those mummy movies yeah that was kind of like the beginning of it and they were such a big success. Yeah, the Steven Summers guy that right. was the director of those movies, they give him carte blanche to go do Van Helsing. Yeah. And he's that There he's pulling in Dracula and Frankenstein and the, the Jekyll and Hyde. Je- and, yeah, all in one big stupid fucking movie. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll, you are wanted by the Knights of the Holy Order. That's Mr. Hyde now. For the murder of 12 yeah. men, 6 women, 4 children, 3 dogs, and a the most sad sack Frankenstein you've ever seen. He's like, I'm He's like practically an opera singer. It's <laughs> I terrible. Think yeah. I think he was. Like yeah. Pretty, I, 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 yeah. 
That movie just, sucks balls. It was just so amazing how he just took every single horror monster <laughs> that Universal had and just took a big shit on Shit them. on all of them, yeah. And then taking a character that is actually, I think, pretty cool, like Van Helsing, and, mm-hmm. and just making him just... Like this, an action hero. Like a, like a James Bo- a Victorian James Bond. And I'm like, yeah. what? He even it's had like, his own cue. Right. You got the Wolfman movie that we mentioned already. Mm-hmm. You got then the official start from what they said was the Tom Cruise mummy horror cinema universe, universe thing right. kind of thing you know and in that movie you got the mummy set up in the movie and then Russell Crowe's playing Jekyll and Hyde I'm offering you a partnership you evil incarnate me your good friend Eddie Hyde think about it so he was gonna branch off and have his own film after that right kind of like what they're doing with the Avengers they did right. back in phase two one and two exactly they, they saw that and they go ooh <laughs> yeah let's let's do that with the monsters yeah right because what was what was wasn't there some casting with some of those other creatures yeah like Johnny Depp was cast as something I'm not sure what but Johnny yeah. Depp was uh, had already been signed cast paid yeah and then they shut down after the mummy movie came out and didn't do as well as they were hoping to do right so yeah, that kind of crashed and burned and everything. But then, so what Universal has done most recently is they took their character of Invisible Man and took it to Blumhouse and said, right. can you do something that's low budget that can take this character and bring it into the modern era? And they did it, and it was. It was a huge Because I hated that movie. I, It was one of those ones, by the time it was over, I was angry at it. <laughs> I just saw it, and I was just like, yeah, I, yeah. I, my whole thing was by the time I saw it, which was probably a year, or maybe longer, after it had come out, all I heard was accolades. Yeah. Great, 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 wonderful reimagining thing, and there was nothing in that movie that I didn't see that was gonna happen. 10, 20 minutes before it happened. Right. And I'm like, oh, well, now this is going to happen. Right. Oh, well, now this is going right. to happen kind of thing. Not that it has to be surprising and twists and everything like that. I just think that, you know, when you look back at how simply these movies that we talked about were done are the ones that we came to lo- love. Yeah. And and then, you know, through those all these years, all of these years, they've been trying to, there's been numerous attempts to remake Creature from the Black Lagoon. One with, like, there was one with... Mark Wahlberg. Oh my God! And one with Bill Paxton and oh, one with wow. uh, yeah, just tons and tons of remake. I think there's a Harrison Ford one at one time, and <laughs> so, but it all uh, just keeps falling apart. Yeah. So, and maybe that's for the best. That's I think that's for the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like to, you, if you're gonna do it, you have to be as reinventive with it as Guillermo del Toro was right. with The Shape of Water. Right. And so that it it's not an extension of the same universe it's something completely different yeah you don't want to do a the wolfman benicio del toro appendage to the creature because it's just going to be someone else out in a lagoon but then they're gonna have you know if you're saying you know they're modeling themselves after the mcu uh, then eventually they're gonna have an avengers of the yeah. And that's there's no way that's not going to be like Van Helsing all over again where it's no, too much of one thing and yeah. You yep. know, monsters don't team up to fight, you know, civil war, you know. Half yeah. of the monsters are on this side and the other half are on this side, but they're pals and then they're not <laughs> pals and they're going to fight in the airport. 
League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh yeah, see that was wasn't that a, that was another part of all this shit, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they got the Invisible Man in there and Jekyll and Hyde and right. So anybody who's who's got any kind of salt in this uh, movie game, like Derek and I do, really should uh, get yourself familiar with these movies because yeah. You know, how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you came from? That's and right. uh, uh, these movies kind of laid the, the groundwork for everything we've known today, as I said earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of great work done in these movies that stands up, you know. Absolutely. I have discovered the great ray that first brought life into the world. Oh, and your proof? Tonight you shall have your proof. We've uh, we've twisted your arms enough on this whole topic. Yeah, we've waxed poetic on it. Yeah, if you're not going to watch them, then God damn it. Yeah, then why do you listen to this whole thing? Turn this <laughs> off right now. I demand of you. Because <laughs> we're done talking anyway. <laughs> I am ending this transmission. Well, then you better hit that button over I'm there. I'm doing but it. before you do it. Yes. Beware. Beware. <laughs> Beware. We are ending our transmission.